Principles of Planned Giving. Hi, I'm Bill Stanjakevich. This is the first day from the fundraising school, and I'm joined today by Russell James III. Russell is a preeminent expert on planned gift fundraising and the author of Chapter 36, Planned Giving Principles in Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, the fifth edition that came out in the spring of 2022. And Russell, great to have you with us on the Fundraising Schools podcast. Thanks so much, Bill. Great to be here. Now, so many fundraisers really approach planned giving with fear and trepidation, but you go all in. What led you to your interest in this complex area of fundraising? Well, sure. You know, Bill, I think it started when I was in law school, took a uh, taxation, really enjoyed it, estate and gift tax and planning, enjoyed that. And uh, then the opportunity to uh, use those skills uh, at a nonprofit organization, uh, a small uh, residential college where I was uh, first assistant uh, director of plan giving then director of plan giving and later later moved into a major gifts focused role. But I I think that was the beginning of it. And uh, in also just uh, having the opportunity to have a private practice in estate planning and seeing how helpful that can be for clients and donors. Now, when people hear that you went to law school and you had a practice in estate planning, everyday fundraiser might say, well, that's it. I'm out. This is too complicated for me. But I know you feel otherwise. So, you know, what encouragement do you have for fundraisers and all nonprofits to be engaged with plan give fundraising? Yeah, I get it. I mean, for many people, the first response to this area is death and taxes. Are you kidding me? I want to stay as far away from that as I can. Uh, But actually, this can be really powerful. And keep in mind that you can get into having these conversations without knowing all the answers, right? We just want to be able to talk to donors about what their goals are and more importantly, talking about what their goals are for their wealth. And that's the key distinction between normal fundraising, which for most people tends to be disposable income decisions, what you might think of as pocket change decisions, as compared with wealth decisions. And when we're talking about plan giving, we're talking about the entire area of sharing wealth. And that's a different animal. And if you're going to have conversations about wealth sharing, you should learn a little bit about wealth. And wealth is not held in cash. It's not held in checking accounts. It's held in assets that go up in value. And that entire world of assets and estate planning and tax planning, it's all about having wealth sharing conversations. And that is socially the goal that we're trying to get to, in large part because those kinds of conversations can lead to gifts of a completely different magnitude than if we're always just asking for cash. So that's why I encourage folks to try to learn a little bit about gifts of assets and major gifts of assets, whether those are during life or at the end of life. It's all about understanding how to help the donor give those assets. Russell, who should I be thinking about in my portfolio? Who should I be trying to identify as a prospective planned gift donor to our nonprofit? 
Yeah, a lot of that depends upon how narrowly you're thinking of this concept of plan giving. For many people, they think of plan giving not as major gifts of assets, which is how I think of it. Instead, they think of it simply as death planning, uh, gifts and wills. And if we're just talking about gifts and wills, the answer is you actually want to get in that will plan as early as you can and it's for an interesting reason. We don't necessarily need to get into that will plan for that 30 or 40 or 50 year old because we're so excited about a gift that maybe one day in 30 or 40 years is going to come to the organization. What's even more powerful today is the change that it makes in the donor's mindset. You see, Bill, for most people, the very first time they will ever commit to a charitable gift from their wealth is when they do that in their estate plan. And using nationally representative data, what we see is that after a person includes a gift in their estate plan to charity, when we look at what happens to their current giving two years later, four, six, even eight years later, we see a jump of about 77% on average in their current giving. And that jump is sustained two, four, six, and even eight years later. Now, this connects with the idea of changing the donor's mindset where they're no longer thinking of giving as just something that is a disposable income decision, a, a pocket change decision that I compare with what I just spent at Starbucks. Now, giving starts to become something that I compare with my wealth holdings. And for most of our donors, especially our older donors who have had time to accumulate uh, wealth, that can lead to much larger gifts. So we actually do want to get in that plan, but not necessarily just for the end-of-life gift. Now, of course, if we are interested in the end-of-life gift, then it's all about who has wealth and what is their age. But I'm suggesting we actually want to have those conversation conversations with a broader range of donors. And how do we go about having that conversation? Uh, I mean, you said, you know, we're combining both death and taxes when we're thinking about plan giving at a very surface level. You know, I don't want to go up to you and say, you know, Russell, you're looking a little peaked. How, how are you feeling today? Right. We're obviously not going to do something like that. So how do we get into this conversation about the possibility of a planned gift? Yeah, that's a great question. And here's a couple of different ways. One's a bit more direct, one's a bit more indirect, depending upon your level of comfort. So for the more direct uh, way, I might say something like, Bill, you have been a donor to this organization for over a decade now. We just really appreciate how much you've accomplished and the impact that you've made here at this organization. You know, Bill, a lot of people who have supported our organization for as long as you have like to include a gift in their estate plan uh, so that they can continue that support uh, into the future. Is that something you and I should be talking about? So that's a more direct approach. If even that seems a little bit too uh, direct for you, 
you can just share a story. So what might this sound like? Well, suppose I was a fundraiser here at Texas Tech University, and let's say you were an alumnus. I I might say uh, in the conversation at some point, you're going to ask me, hey, what's new at the organization? What's new at the university? And I'm going to share three stories and shut up. And here's what it's going to sound like. I'm going to say, well, you know, Bill, we're really excited about our uh, new basketball season. We got some great recruits coming in, and now the conference is getting even bigger with uh, a lot of new schools coming in. Uh, And so that's exciting. There's a lot of construction on campus. You know, we're over 40,000 students now and a lot of the new residence halls you can see if you come in the west side of campus. Oh, and you know, you know, Bill, John Smith did something really interesting. Uh, now, did you know, John, he graduated two years before you? Uh, no. Well, John spent his whole career helping other people get their finances in order. And he recently signed a new will that one day will create a permanent scholarship for our financial planning students. And so what we're seeing from those examples, positive, upbeat conversation, not heavy not legal. I didn't hear anything about, you know, IRS codes and taxes, but uh, just a very pleasant conversation with a donor who's interested in my nonprofit. And you notice, Bill, and for those who are listening on the uh, not not watching the video, I took a drink at the end of that final story because the fourth step every fundraiser knows is to shut up. So you want to wait and see what the donor's reaction is. And you've actually accomplished two things. Obviously, if you've reached a donor at a point in their lives when they want to continue that conversation, you've given them an opportunity to do so. If you've reached a donor at a point in their lives when they're not interested in continuing that conversation, of course, you'll hear something like, oh, that new building, where would I park if I wanted to see it? And you might think, oh, I tried it and it didn't work. But in fact, what you have done is something that is very powerful. You have shared a living donor story about another donor who is like the person you're talking to, who has included a gift and a will that's going to make a permanent impact. And of all the different messages we've tested, that's the most effective message to shift attitudes about including a gift and a will. So it's a very powerful strategy. Russell, you've uh, talked about ways that we can identify and talk with our donors about uh, potential for planned gifts. A donor is going to engage, or excuse me, a fundraiser is going to engage with this podcast and go back to their CEO, or the CEO is going to go back to the board and say, we want to launch into planned gift fundraising. And the CEO or the board might say, yeah, but what about the annual fund? You know, how can we do both at the same time? We need to make sure we're paying the bills this year and getting those salaries covered. What advice do you have for nonprofits who are maybe thinking along this line of a binary either or choice? as opposed to plan giving being fully integrated into the fundraising plan. Yeah, so you know, Bill, if I am talking to an internal nonprofit audience, I'm actually not even going to call it plan giving. I'm going to call it major gifts of assets. And the reason I'm going to call it that is because that, number one, isn't a death euphemism. Number two, it's about, ooh, major gifts. I like major gifts. Those are big. But it is major gifts of assets. And you see, you can't ask for a gift of an asset 
unless you understand a little bit about assets. You need to understand, for example, that donors can get a double tax benefit if they give an appreciated asset rather than giving cash. That's because they avoid capital gains taxes. You need to understand a little bit about how they don't even have to change their portfolio to do that. They can just give us the old shares of stock instead of giving us the cash and use the cash to immediately buy brand new shares of stock in the exact same company. Now, once you understand that concept of uh, making gifts of appreciated assets, well, now we can get all crazy and wonky with putting that in a charitable remainder trust or a donor-advised fund or all the different kind of alphabet soup things that we love to do in planned giving. Uh, and of course, one of the major ways that people will make gifts of assets is when they make those gifts of assets in their will plan. And so that's just one of those pieces of the gifts of assets. When we start having wealth conversations with donors, it leads to all of these outcomes. We simply want to have those conversations asking for the donor's story, their asset story. What is the past, the present, and the future of that asset? How did you get started with this business or in this investing? What's going on right now? What are your future plans? If their future plans are to sell, well, we've got lots of plan giving options for that to avoid capital gains taxes to accomplish their income goals, to accomplish their charitable goals along the way. If their plan is to not sell, well, guess what that means? That means estate planning. And we've got lots of plan giving options for that as well. So again, the idea here is we want to frame this as a non-death topic of major gifts of assets. It's not an either or. It's all about having wealth conversations with donors, shifting them from disposable income sharing to wealth sharing. And Russell mentioned a key vehicle for that is uh, putting that uh, asset into a will. We also know another key vehicle is the retirement plan, as well as the insurance policy. In fact, the vast majority of plan gifts come through wills, retirement plans, and insurance policies. And at the fundraising school, we encourage you, if you don't want to get hung up on you know, what's a charitable remainder trust and all those types of things, there are experts at your local community foundation, perhaps on your board, maybe at a financial institution who can help you with those particulars. But uh, we hope what you're taking away from this conversation is being in relationship with your donors that can lead them to those major gift asset conversations. And, you know, Russell, as we conclude here, you talk about a donor who makes a planned gift, then while they're still alive, that their annual giving and their other major gift giving can continue and increase over time while they're still with us in this world. That would seem to me, and I think your research backs this up, you point this out in the chapter, that over time, am I understanding this correctly, that a nonprofit that includes planned gift fundraising, major gift asset fundraising, in their overall fundraising plan, those nonprofits tend to raise more money for their annual fund. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah. Now, this comes from a study where we looked at over a million nonprofit tax returns over a six-year period to see what predicted long-term fundraising growth. And just to give you a quick statistic comparison, if you had an organization that both at the beginning and at the end of that five-year period was raising their gifts only from cash, so they're not getting any asset gifts. On average, among organizations raising at least a million dollars a year, the uh, 
average total combined growth rate over those five years was 11%. That was the same as the combined inflation rate over that period of time. They're essentially just treading water. You compare that to organizations that both at the beginning and at the end were also including in their gifts from donors, gifts of securities, that is, uh, those gifts of assets. Uh, Those organizations, on average, grew their total contributions, not by 11% over that five-year period, but by 66%. It was a six-fold greater growth. Now, this actually connects with that psychological concept because one of the things that is different about that gift of securities is that that is conceptually not a disposable income gift. That is a gift from wealth. And when a donor makes that gift from securities, what do they compare it to? Their securities portfolio, the natural comparison point, is much larger. It is a wealth comparison point. And that's what can make the gifting over time to be much larger as well. Again, it comes back to that same principle, whether right now or later, we always want to be having conversations about major gifts of assets and a way for donors to experience the joy of giving in so many different ways and perhaps in larger ways as they donate those assets to us uh, for our annual and major gift fund initiatives but also through these planned gifts russell james the third is the author of chapter 36 planned giving principles in Achieving Excellence in Fundraising, the fifth edition, which is the core textbook of all of our courses at the Fundraising School. Nearly two dozen public courses available in person or online. We can also custom tailor this curriculum specifically just for you. We have quarterly webinars and these free podcasts. All the information available on our website at philanthropy.iupui.edu forward slash the fundraising school. I'm so grateful for our guest today, Russell James III. Our producers today, Mike Anthony and Jennifer Boffman. I'm Bill Stanjakevich, and you are now more fully informed on this first day from the fundraising school. Mm-hmm.